how raw eggs can be highly corrosive? I asked my neighbor, a sweet 40-something single woman named Mary. I didn't either. I found out the hard way last mischief night when some kids egged my car. It ate right through the clear coat. Mary shook her head and gestured to a couple of lawn chairs that she had set up next to a fire blazing in her front yard. Lots of homes in the area had these big, built-in front yard fire pits. It encouraged neighbors to socialize, which was nice. Well, now you know better, she said, handing me a beer. That's why we all stay out. I tried to tell you last year. Mary and I settled into our chairs, silently surveying the matching front yard fires in nearly every house on the block. Despite the possible vandalism, the atmosphere in the neighborhood was cozy. It's not like it was life or death. Just a little mischief. So, I said, trying to keep the conversation rolling, know any good scary stories? Mary suddenly got a faraway look in her eyes. Yeah, I know one, she said. Back in the 60s, some pretty awful stuff happened here. Here, I said. I guess I'm not gonna sleep tonight. None of us will, she said quietly. Mischief night used to be a big deal in this town. Everyone planned elaborate yearly pranks. They would redecorate entire lawns, set up crazy scenes and hoaxes. It was all in good fun, until it wasn't. You ever wonder why your house doesn't have a fire pit, she asked. Not until now, I said, realizing how odd that was. A young couple and their son used to live there. The little boy, Joseph, was born funny. He was small for his age, and one leg was shorter than the other, so he walked with a considerable limp. He could never keep up with the other kids. Slow Joe, they called him. It was cruel, but that's kids for you. The only one who, ever picked, who never picked on poor Joe was his neighbor, Katie. She didn't care that he was slow. She liked his funny stories. As they got older, though, Katie grew more and more beautiful and had little use for her old friend, Slow Joe. By 1964... When they had entered middle school, it seemed that all of the kids had turned their backs on Joe, even Katie. That mischief night, all the kids were getting together in their little friend groups to play pranks, but nobody invited Joe. He walked home from school extra slow that day, slow enough that Katie, who had stayed after for track practice, caught up to him. She said that nobody should be alone on mischief night and offered to ditch her friends to hang out with him. She said they could prank all the other kids together. Nobody would see it coming. Joe smiled. She told him to sneak out of his house at midnight and meet her by the lake, by the tree with the old rope swing. Joe had never been so happy. So that night, just before midnight, while his parents peacefully slept, Joe tipped down the stairs and out the front door, but not before grabbing a carton of eggs from the fridge. This'll get him, he thought. He walked up to the lake, holding the carton of eggs eagerly. The rope swing dangled in the breeze, creating ominous shadows with its lone loop. Katie wasn't there yet, and he hoped she hadn't gotten in trouble. After a few minutes of waiting, he heard a noise coming from the bushes. Joseph whipped around, expecting to see Katie's pretty smile. But instead, a tall, dark figure emerged from the shadows. Then another, and then another. They were wearing black hooded cloaks and heavy black gloves. More of them jumped out of the trees, and a few crawled out from under benches. They assembled in a horde. One stepped out in front, and with a large blade, they said, I have found our lamb for the slaughter. Go. And with that, they all took off towards Joseph, growling like angry dogs. 
Joseph dropped the carton of eggs from under his arm and ran, but he knew they were much too fast for him. He had to do something, and so Joseph made his way to the big tree where the rope swang dang swing dangled, and, with great effort, climbed up into its branches. Pale and desperate with fear and exertion, Joseph looked down to the crowd below and noticed they had all stopped at the base of the tree, and what's more, they were snarling now. But then, they weren't snarling anymore. They were laughing. What's going on? Who are you? What do you want with me? Joseph shouted. The hooded figures laughed louder. Stop, Joseph yelled near tears. Stop this right now. It's not funny. Then why am I laughing? The tall figure in the front said, lowering her hood. It was Katie. One by one, all the figures lowered their hoods, revealing kids in Joseph's class. They were laughing at him. He had never been in danger, and Katie had never wanted to meet up with him. It was all a setup. Furious and heartbroken, Joseph shifted positions in the tree, and a loud snap echoed beneath him. Have you ever witnessed an accident so perfect that it almost seems beautiful? The kids watched in undiluted horror as Joseph's body fell through the tree, his head landing directly in the loop of the rope swing. He bounced once, twice, and then nothing. No one was laughing now. Katie screamed, and some kids started crying. One threw up. They all ran back into town to get help, agreeing on a story along the way. They would say they had all snuck out to plan a prank when they came upon Joseph's body swinging from the tree. He was a lonely, sad kid, and, and I guess he must have killed himself. The police bought it. After all, there was no evidence to the contrary. When they cut him down, they discovered a large, eerie smile plastered across Joseph's face. Rictus, the medical examiner explained, but even as he said it, he knew it was a lie. Something was off. Joseph's parents buried him on a Tuesday, and on Wednesday night, the laughing began. At first, it was just in the middle of the night. Katie began to laugh uncontrollably in her sleep. Her parents would come in and try to wake her, but the laughing would turn to tears and then screams before something finally jolted her awake. Frightened and disoriented, Katie would refuse to tell anyone what she saw in her dreams and would remain in her room, eyes wide open, until morning. Every night, it was the same thing, and so eventually, Katie would just keep herself awake. Days and days would pass, her eyes plastered open, not wanting to face whatever waited for her in her sleep. One day, completely exhausted, Katie nodded off in class. The laughter bubbled up out of her until she was on her feet, laughing maniacally, her mouth split into a hideous grin, tears streaming down her cheeks, screams eventually leaping from her throat. Her teacher could not get her awake. Eventually, another student touched a lit match to her hand. She grabbed it, crushed the flame in her palm, and woke up. The match head stuck to her palm. Katie could only sob. That was her last day of school. Her parents tried to help. They got her therapy. They even got her sleeping pills, but she refused to take them. Sleep wasn't the answer, she said. A year of this hell went by, and once again, it was mischief night. The stress and sleeplessness had taken their toll. Katie's once bright eyes were now nearly swollen shut. She had grown painfully thin, and her hair started falling out in clumps. The laughter had pulled at her mouth so hard that her jaw would cramp and lock her face in a menacing grin for days at a time. The effect was terrifying. 
Katie's parents knew she needed sleep, and so that night they crushed three sleeping pills and put the powder into her tea. Everyone went to bed early, and Katie's parents thought that for, the, for one moment they might have some peace. But you and I both know that was foolish. Like clockwork at midnight, the laughter began. This time it was louder and angrier than before. Katie's parents burst into her room to see her standing next to her bed, eyes wide open and full of panic, her mouth in a sharp contrast, grinning and laughing like a clown. She walked over to her window slowly, her feet dragging as though they were fighting her body's tears streaming from her cheeks. Katie, what are you doing? Her parents yelled. She climbed out of her window and onto the roof and then slowly walked to the edge. Katie, stop, they yelled, stop this instant. But she could only laugh with her mouth and panic with her eyes. Katie, they yelled, this isn't funny. Her head whipped around and the lights seemed to go off inside her eyes. For a moment, Katie's face changed, and then, in a different voice, the anguished voice of a 13-year-old boy, she said, then why am I laughing? Then, she walked to the edge of the roof and jumped. She landed on the wrought iron fence below, a jagged post skewered through her back, protruding through her stomach, her face twisted into a horrible grin. All the other kids that watched Slow Joe die took their lives in a similar manner. One mischief night after the next, laughing while tears streamed down their faces. And when they were all gone, he started coming for anyone who was unlucky enough to live here. He doesn't care who he hurts anymore. He just wants revenge. That's why we don't sleep on mischief night. We don't know who's next. The town put up the fire pits to help keep everyone awake but you don't have one. That's because your house was his house. His mother sold it to you right before she died. Not from the laughing though, Joe loved his mother. But I'm not so sure about you, she said with a grin. <laughs> What's that? Hey, do you hear that? Mary looked me right in the eye, he's here. Stop it! That isn't funny! I'm done with this! This isn't funny! Mary snapped her head around, laughing, and looked directly at me, her mouth breaking into a wide grin. Then why am I laughing? She said, before throwing herself into the fire. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. Come, Come play, play with us! us. Now I just like dance for a little while. Yeah. Yeah. This is what we usually Every do when time. We Our projections are up there in case you guys didn't notice. <laughs> hey Leslie. Hey Holly. Welcome, Fiends. Hello. Wow, it's so nice to see you live before our eyes. Is it weird to see our faces? <laughs> yeah, it's weird to see your faces. <laughs> uh, usually, this is the time when I ask you all to bathe us in life-giving validation so we can be young and beautiful forever. But tonight, I, um, I think we already got that covered. Yeah, we, so look, we look great. Look pretty young, yep. you know. 
So good job, you guys. You did it. But if you are listening at home, because we are recording tonight's show and that will be our release this Tuesday, please leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review on Apple Podcast. Support the podcast on Patreon uh, for lots of extra content and treats. Tell a friend, tell a neighbor, tell your bartender. Who's our bartender? Do we have one? All right, Miles the Grinch. Well, tell him, and then your friends and Miles the Grinch can become fiends, and we can all hang out together. Hooray! Great time. That'll be fun. Uh, and if you're interested in We Would Be Dead merchandise, we sure do have a lot available on our website. If you're jealous of the glasses, I can assure you there will be more eventually. Please take all the pictures you want tonight. It's totally all right. We're very, very vain. Just be sure to tag us wherever they are posted. Yes, I agree. <laughs> Leslie, wow. do you have anything to add before we begin? Well, actually, Holly. What? I have nothing this no. week. <laughs> I get hopeful every time. I know. One day. And she I, really I never says stuff. anything. You did a couple times. Yeah, but not well, this time. Well, all these nice people came to see us, so I guess we should skip with the funny business and get on with the show. <laughs> In case any of you didn't see the announcement, tonight we are talking about the heavily requested real-life cases, that's right, there are two, that inspired the book, film, and subsequent nine million documentaries on the Amityville Horror. Ooh. Yes! We did this one because it's a murder, it's a haunting, it's a murder haunting, it's all of it! And if you don't know anything about this case, then watch Leslie carefully, because she doesn't either. Nothing. So... You're going to go on this journey together. Yep. I've never to, seen the movies or anything. That's right. You haven't seen anything. Nope. So she's going to be horrified. Yeah. So if you need a break, just watch Leslie's horrified face. It's going to be <laughs> going to be a delight. I can't wait. So tonight, I'm going to keep away from the Hollywood interpretation of this insanely complex story and stick to the fact. This is a story of family violence, murder, fear, abandonment, abuse, paranormal forces, unlikely friendship, and the question of whether evil exists in the world alone, or if we, as humans, must create it. Oh, is that all? That's all. Okay. So you get a quick, quick in and out. We're done. Cool. So, on November 13th, 1974, it was a crisp, cold evening in the little village of Amityville, New York. Oh, scary. Oh, John. Meet Dracula. The patrons of Henry's bar that night were all regulars, and being as they were regulars, they all knew each other. Thanksgiving was still two weeks away, and in those days, the holiday season was nowhere in sight in mid-November. Mariah Carey had not yet arrived in her golden sled to yank the people of Earth from their Halloween candy coma into two solid months of glittery tinsel time. It's too bad. It was nothing more than a run-of-the-mill Thursday. Henry's was a little strip mall. It was divey, sure, but the patrons were loyal and everyone seemed to know one another. At 6.30 p.m., when after work, the after-work drinkers sorry, had settled into their places at the bar, 23-year-old Butch DeFeo ran through the door in a panic. Visibly distressed, with tears streaming down his face, he quickly found his friend, Bobby the Brick, a former local football legend at the bar, and called out for him. Bobby ran to Butch, who grabbed him and said, you have to help me. Someone shot my mother and father. Ooh. Dramatic, right? Yes. It's a good way to enter a bar. Hmm. Which piqued the interest of the other men in there, obviously. 
Bobby and a few of the other men in the bar hopped into Butch's Buick Electra and they sped off toward Butch's home at 112 Ocean Avenue. With like no other questions? They no, no like, questions asked. Did you asked. call the cops? Did you, nothing? No, he was freaking out and they were like, okay, we want to see what you're talking about mm-hmm. because you look crazy. Okay, so, all right. As soon as they pulled into the driveway of 112 Ocean, the men in the back seat ran toward the house. Bobby tried to get Butch to come with him, but he refused to budge, stating that he would not go back in that house before banging his head against the dashboard repeatedly. Bobby didn't really know what to do with that, and so he left Butch in the driver's seat and slowly entered the old Dutch colonial home. It was eerily quiet, especially for a seven-person household. Bobby entered the master bedroom, and while he thought he was prepared for what he was about to see, he soon discovered that he could never have prepared himself for what he saw. What did he see? What did he see? What did he see? Ronald DeFeo Sr. and his wife Louise lay in their bed, as though they were sleeping, face down. Louise was completely covered by a blanket, but Ronald was exposed. Both were face down, pale and unmoving, with a bullet in each of their backs. Two, in fact, we would find out later, Okay, just to be sure. Bobby raced into the living room where one of the other men was already on the phone with 911. Good, okay. There you go. Called the damn cops. A little late, but they did it. Better late than never. They still did it. Now, I would read you all the 911 call, and it's out there if you want it, but it's a total bungling mess. The operator asks for the caller's name like 150 different times and does not understand that there are dead people to deal with for way too long. It's just a long time of like, what's your name again? What's your address? Huh? Oh boy. Not worth it. During the call, it dawns on the men who have come in to discover the brutal scene that more people than just Ron and Louise live in that house. And there was still absolutely no noise. One of the men heads upstairs for another bedroom. And when he enters, he sees 12-year-old Mark DeFeo and 9-year-old John Matthew DeFeo dead in their beds. Oh, there were children? Yeah, there are kids in this one. Sorry. I feel like everybody knew it, and I should have known you didn't. Never mind. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't give you a trigger warning, Leslie. I'm so sorry. It's all right. Usually don't. I know. Both of them were laying as though they were asleep. Mark's gray wheelchair sat next to his bed where it had been parked after a pre-bed bathroom trip. He had injured his leg during a football game. And that's why he needed the wheelchair. The mattresses were both soaked in blood that had poured through their backs and stomachs and onto the floor below. Initially, it was reported to the 911 people that four people were found dead in the DeFeo household. But when the police arrived, they discovered that there were two more bedrooms they hadn't gone in. In one, they found the body of 13-year-old Allison DeFeo laying face down, Again, as though sleeping in her bed. So many people here. I know. It's a huge family. The pink blanket was pulled neatly over her back, while blood poured from her upper body, flooding the side of the mattress and collecting in a pool below her on the floor. In the other bedroom, they found the worst scene of all. 18-year-old Dawn DeFeo lay in her bed face up and uncovered. The only one who was face up. The bullet had entered Dawn's cheek and collapsed her face, spraying blood and brain matter all over the bed. Her mouth lay agape, blood drenching her pillow and upper body. The entire DeFeo family, with the exception of Butch, 
had been ruthlessly and efficiently murdered in their sleep. Mm. Not good. I know. Now, while we are most certainly about to launch into the history of this house and the DeFeo family, did you think I wasn't going to do that? (laughs) Of course I am, don't worry. The meat of the story takes place in 1974 and then continues on for just two years before coming to a full and complete stop. So, before retracing our steps, perhaps we should explore 1974 a little bit. Ooh, that's me. Yeah, what was life like then for the DeFeos before it was so brutally taken from them? Leslie, is there any chance you might just off, like off the top of your head? Yeah, yeah. Know something about 1974? Funny you should say. Oh my God. Yeah, I, I know a lot about 1974. It's my lucky day. Uh, Specifically that it was an inflation. Inflation was spiraling out of control. Better murder your family. Yeah, right? Uh, There was a global recession that was deepening in our country. Mm -hmm. Gas prices were super high. The U.S. was trying to find ways to help preserve energy, so that's, like, nice of them. Okay. Uh, That was the year that the 55-mile-an-hour speed limit was, like, put into place. Oh, annoying. Yeah. Uh, but it did help conserve gas. Okay. That's why it was there? That's why Not like that. you might die, you need to conserve gas is why we have speed limits. Yeah, it was just like, they were like, oh, th- you know what? That, that'll help us. <laughs> all right, yeah. all right. Mm-hmm. You learn something new every day. President Nixon signed the Emergency Daylight Savings Act of 1973, which resulted in America springing forward an hour in January instead of like in the spring. Huh. And then staying that way for 16 months. I don't like that. No, no one did. It got real dark in the mornings, and everyone got real gloomy. Yeah, And no. so Americans, like, asked to take yeah, it away. That's terrible. Agree. Yeah. So we went back to normal. Uh, speaking of President Nixon, he was forced to resign because, you know, Watergate. <sighs> he didn't do a good job at all. No. Um, in fashion, though, let's get to some fun oh, stuff. Oh, fashion. Okay. All right. In fashion, uh, the early to mid-1970s, we're seeing a lot of flared pants, bomber jackets, worn with open collar, like, shirts. Knee-length, pleated, and pencil skirts. Yes, a lot um, of fashion. Yeah. And then jackets that had, like, fun oversized collars and then the fun slouchy hats, too. Love a hat. Yeah. Women were starting to put, like, the little little palms on their hats whenever they were knitting. It was real cute. And I still Mm. love those now. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Stephen King published his debut novel, Carrie. Nice. Yeah. Okay. We love a Stephen King novel. Nice. (laughs) Uh, This was his fourth book that King would write, and but the first to be published. And if his wife didn't pull it out of the trash, he never would have had it. No. Yeah. Oh, man. Good job, wife. Uh, Muhammad Ali fought George Foreman and won by a knockout in the eighth boxing match. The eighth eighth inning or whatever it is. Yeah. All right. (laughs) (laughs) He became the second heavyweight boxing champ to regain his title. So that happened in 1974. All right. Feels like that was so long ago, you know? Kind of was. I guess it was. I'm a, I'm a very old person. It's fine. Well, so this is fun. Okay. The Blazing Saddles movie premiere took place at the Pickwick Drive-In Theater in Burbank, California, Ooh. where 200 guests watched the film on horseback. On horseback? Yep. It was a drive-in on horseback? That, yeah, that had to have been wild. That sounds terrible. There was probably poop everywhere. How comfortable could that be? You're on a horse. I don't know. All How right. did they get popcorn? Did they have to get down, or did they just like walk their horse? Another horse brought it to them. A yeah. little horse. Oh, that would be adorable. It's like a little popcorn horse. I want one. Popcorn horse? Yeah. Obviously. Okay. All right. Uh, the post-it note was invented by Arthur Fry, not Romeo not Michelle. Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you got there. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, the Sting won the Oscar for Best Film. Okay. All the President's Men by Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodruff were the, uh, like the most popular book at the time. Okay. The Magic Show was the new and popular Broadway musical. The Magic Show. I don't know that one. No. Do you know that one? It you lasted guys? like four no. years, I think. Yeah. All right. My Broadway friends don't even know it, so. <laughs> I thought everyone was going to be like, woo! Woo, Magic I Show! I guess not. I guess not. Okay. <laughs> Um, All in the Family and Sanford and Son were the top TV shows. All right. And uh, The Way We Were by Barbara Streisand was the top song. Mm. But Holly, what? There were some other really great songs that year. Oh, man. Guys, is Leslie going to sing? <laughs> she loves to sing. I do, but I can't sing. So everyone stay with me here, okay? All right. We're on, we're, you could sing. You do it all the time. I know. Okay. I love it. <laughs> all right, so... I'm, now that you guys are here, you're going to help me, right? All right. So I'm going to do a call and response. I'm going to sing a line, and then it's your job to figure out the next line, okay? And if you don't know, we'll shame it's you. It's a lot of, these are 1974 songs. So All right, Leslie. Get back in that. I just put you in the era. <laughs> okay? Let's go. Ready? I'm ready. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Come on, baby. <laughs> I know you'll get to like it if you give it a chance now. Come on, baby, do the locomotion. Perfect. <laughs> that, was the, that was the locomotion. Those are good. <laughs> that was good. Good job. All right. This one might be a little trickier. Oh, no. I'm going to get you guys to repeat after me, and then you're just going to keep going with it, okay? Ooga chaka, ooga, ooga, ooga chaka, ooga, ooga. Keep going. Ooga chaka, ooga, ooga, ooga I can't stop this feeling deep inside of me. Yes. Girl, you just don't realize what you do to me. <laughs> when you hold me. <laughs> and so tight. Keep going. Keep I want to bring her up here. You let me know everything's all right. Everybody. Ah, <laughs> hooked on a feeling. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> I think we should clap for her. <laughs> you got them going, Leslie. Yeah, I know. Woo. And She's here my... to stir up the crowd. <laughs> and then my favorite. Love hurts. <laughs> I really wanted her to sing yeah. that one. It's all right. <laughs> That was 1974 so in a nutshell. So that was 1974. <laughs> do you feel well done, Leslie? I'm going to bring her back to do more stuff in a little bit. Now she's going to look really pretty and say funny things. Yeah. Um, okay, so if you guys are all in your 70s mindset, let me take you right out of it. Now, an event like this may be something one could expect in a rural farming town or a major city, but Jaws fans will tell you it wasn't the kind of thing that happened in Amityville, which, like, I didn't realize also Jaws takes place there. What? Yeah. You can't have two. You only get one. Oh, well, that, I guess that I did. That fact I did know. You'd, see? That's the one thing you did know. Mm -hmm. What sort of place is Amityville, you ask? Well, I will tell you. In the little town of Babylon, sitting on the south shore of Long Island, New York, lies the friendly little village of Amityville. No, really. Amityville is just the words Amity, which means friendly, and Ville, which is short for village. That's so nice. I know, and it literally means friendly village. Ooh. Mr. Rogers had a house there. True story, he did. 
At just 2.5 square miles in size with a population of over 9,000, Amityville is a place where local news travels fast. It is filled with beautiful bayside homes, restaurants, beaches, and a cheery main street. All of this has made it a prime destination for tourists and wealthy East Coasters alike since the dawn of the 20th century. So in a word, rich. Amityville is rich. They should have called it Affluentville. That was cheap, I'm sorry, I couldn't help myself. But our story does not start with the town, it starts with a house. In 1924, John and Catherine Moynihan put, purchased a plot of farmland in Amityville from a woman named Annie Ireland, whose family had been in the town for centuries. The land was situated right on the Amityville River, and the Moynihans immediately set about building their dream home. It took three years, but the three-story Dutch colonial was a masterpiece when it was finished. Five bedrooms, three and a half bathrooms, a finished basement, a boathouse, a private dock, and swimming pool. So not too shabby. Sounds wonderful. Yeah. Their new address, 112 Ocean Avenue, was a shining jewel in its neighborhood. The home was situated sideways on the property in reference to the street, and so the Moynihan's decided to jazz up the street side of the house with a pair of distinct quarter-moon windows, giving the infamous-to-be Amityville house its iconic jack-o'-lantern look. Now, these windows were eventually removed in the 90s because people were, like, way too keen on trying to take pictures and get in there. But they do still exist um, in a private collection somewhere. So if you make friends with a real weird private collector, maybe you can touch them. I don't know. Just, like, the window? Just the windows. The, whole, the panes were taken out, like the little half-moon-shaped windows. Somebody has those. So the Moynihans lived happily in the house without incident until they died, which I guess is an incident, but they were old, so yeah. it's fine. At which point, their daughter, Eileen, moved in with her family. Eileen and her family also lived at 112 Ocean happily until 1960, when they sold the large estate to John and Mary Riley, who also had nothing but good experiences there, until 1965, when they got divorced, which I guess is a bad experience, but That's true. really not the house's fault, so. Or it, is it? Or, or is it? You don't know. I don't know. And then the house was sold again this time to Ronald and Louise DeFeo, who moved in soon after the sale with their five children, Ronald Jr., a.k.a. Butch, Dawn, Allison, Mark, and baby John Matthew. Ooh. Yeah, are they up there? There they are. There's the DeFeos. That looks like a 70s family. It's a very 70s family. And the inside of the house at this time was all like ketchup and mustard, red and yellow, and like super patterned wallpaper. It was nuts inside. Gorgeous. Um, yeah, right? For those of you who listen on a regular basis, uh, I will, the, when this recording comes out, there will be a photo suite, and I'll make sure to include actual photos of inside the house and the crime scene, which is, like, too much for here right now, so you can see it. Anyway, the DeFeos were different from your standard Amityville homeowners. For starters, they did not come from money, per se. Ronald Sr., who went by Big Ronnie... Ooh. All right, Big Ronnie worked as a service manager at a Buick dealership in Brooklyn. And back before they bought the sprawling Amityville home, the family lived in a small apartment near Big Ronnie's Jab. I say Big Ronnie a lot of times, and it just dawned on me how ridiculous it is to say. <laughs> okay. Here we go. All right. While service manager at a car dealership is a more than respectable job with an upper middle class pay range, it was not then, nor is it today, a job that paid historic waterfront home in posh East Coast town money. So, 
kind of curious as to how he afforded that. To break it down in today's terms, the top-tier automotive service manager position in Brooklyn right now has a $117,800 per year salary, and this is after many years of employment. The Amityville house is estimated today to be worth approximately $900,000. Wow. I know, if you want it, like, you gotta pay for it. Take into account that the DeFeos are supporting five children and Louise doesn't work. So that doesn't add up. Well, that's because the DeFeos had advantages. First, Big Ronnie's great uncle was Peter DeFeo, a high-ranking official in the Genovese crime family. And in case that doesn't ring a bell, it's the mafia. Mm -hmm. They were in the mafia. Yes. That's the mafia. Great. This is important. Should we be talking about The mafia? No. You could say it a few more times. Okay. The mafia. I don't know. We, we might not. We should not tell this story. Uh, the mafia is involved. Get out of here. <laughs> this is important to remember as it does come back a little bit later. In addition to the mafia ties. Oh, sorry. I said it again. The dealership Big Ronnie worked at was owned by his father-in-law, Michael Briganti, who was not super keen on Ronnie. Louise was an exceptionally beautiful aspiring model who once dated Mel Torme. Ooh. Yeah. Fun fact, her dad didn't exactly love the fact that she ended up with a smooth-talking grandnephew of a mobster, but Michael Briganti was even less keen on Louise living in a cramped apartment, and so there are those who speculate he helped. So with a little help from their family, or maybe the family, see what I did there? The DeFeos bought their dream home. Louise decorated the front lawn with a large statue of St. Joseph holding the baby Jesus. Ironically... He is the patron saint of fathers. Also remember that. Yep. And then there were also three smaller statues of children praying at his feet. It's pretty off-putting, to say the least. And they're fully painted. It's like a nuts giant religious lawn display. Oh. It's on, okay. it's on the it's front on lawn. The lawn. <laughs> they're like big statues. I don't know. Big Ronnie also hung a lamppost in the front lawn with a sign attached that said, High Hopes. Because that's what they had. And so that's what they would call their new home. And though they may have had hope, I know, isn't that nice? Yeah. We'll call it's like the it. hang in there cat, like on the wall. <laughs> it's a kitten. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and though they may have had hope, what the DeFeos didn't have was stability. They always seemed to be screaming for one reason or another. And often these screaming matches resulted in physical violence at the hand of Big Ronnie. Big Ronnie was a terrifying combination of violent and unpredictable. A man with a hair trigger, you might say. He would lash out at his wife for no reason. On one occasion, Louise was merely walking up the stairs with a basket of laundry when Big Ronnie punched her in the face so hard that she tumbled backwards all the way back down. What? Yeah. Not nice. You don't really hear this part of the story as often as you should, but he was not a nice man. Just punched her? Just she was decked her. Laundry? She was like, hey, coming up the stairs, bam, back down. When it came to the children, Big Ronnie was certainly a stern disciplinarian, but none of them got it like poor Butch. From an early age, Big Ronnie taught Butch through his actions that no one and nowhere on this planet was a safe space. He did this by punishing, them out of, punishing Butch out of nowhere for absolutely no reason at all on a regular basis. One family member recalls an incident when Butch was just two. He said, quote, we were all sitting down in the basement watching TV and I don't know, the boy had said or done something. All of a sudden he stood up, 
the father and just pushed the boy out of the way into the wall. The boy banged his head or part of his shoulder or something. Now, I don't know if you know a whole lot about kids, but it isn't great for them to spend every waking moment in fear of violence. Butch was the oldest son, and therefore Big Ronnie expected a lot from him. Namely, he expected him to be someone that he wasn't. As he grew, Butch had, uh, had to find comfort somewhere, and so he chose food. Okay. I know. Snacks are good when you're sad. Yeah. We get it. It's fine. Butch grew overweight and didn't have a lot of friends. Not because he was overweight, because he's kind of a jerk, as you're going to see. And he was relentlessly bullied. The kids at school called Butch, oh, this is so mean, the Blob, Bucky Beaver, and Pork Chop. Well, those aren't good. Those aren't nice names at all. So, like, he's having a pretty hard time. Big Ronnie simply encouraged Butch to fight back with his fists. And he did. At 13 years old, Butch had begun to act out violently. He got into fights at school, and not just with bullies, unprovoked fights with, like, anybody. Anybody who walked by. He lashed out at family members, hitting his siblings and threatening them. And now, when Big Ronnie hit him, he was afraid he might hit back. Mm. Yeah. Like, what do you think you're going to breed when you're just, like, constantly having this kid terrified of violence? Anyway, the DeFeos knew something had to be done about Butch, so they brought him to a child psychologist. But Butch didn't like therapy, so after a couple of sessions, he simply refused to go back. And they were back to square one. It's interesting that they brought him to one. I know. I thought that's pretty progressive for these people who don't seem to be into that kind of thing. But yeah. I guess when you're trying to like beat up your family, you have to do something. I'm like, this is affecting us now. Yeah, so. we, we're inconvenienced, so we're going to try something? I don't know. By 16 years old, Butch, to escape the hellscape of his life, found drugs. Oh, mm-hmm. that's exciting. First food, then drugs. What a time. Mm. He didn't start out slow, either. He went right to heroin and LSD. Oh, that's not good. I know. Just, just go big or go home. This is especially interesting because later in life, he was diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. If you can think back to our episode on Richard Trenton Chase, mm. and you should because we never stop talking about it, you will remember that those particular personality, that particular personality disorder, as well as any psychotic disorder, does not interact well with hallucinogenic drugs. It is a terrible combination. My mom agreed. This, this would thank you, Diane. Like that. Diane knows. <laughs> By this point, Butch's parents saw no, saw no alternative but to bribe him into good behavior. Like I feel like there was an alternative. This is a terrible choice. Or at least they wanted to try. They gave him a speedboat, a $14,000 speedboat. I mean, I will th start throwing fits if I get a speedboat. For sure. And a car, the aforementioned Buick Electra, and anything he wanted. This earned Butch a reputation in school for being spoiled, surly, and a loose cannon who was nearly always on drugs. Man, those not, are not good qualities. No, they're not good qualities, especially in school. Eventually, his violent outbursts would get him expelled from high school at 17. You can't just be indiscriminately beating people up all the time and get to stay. But instead of dealing with the situation, the DeFeos rewarded it. In an attempt to keep Butch happy and calm, his father got him a job at the dealership that came with a competitive salary. Nepotism at its finest. Sometimes Butch came to work, but sometimes he didn't. And either way, he got paid handsomely every week. So you can imagine how popular he was with the other employees. Very. Yeah, they loved him. Yeah, he was like, like the American dream. Yeah, you're like, look at you living off your family's money. Yeah. 
That sounds great. You are aspirational. I would like these parents. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I love you. <laughs> At this point, Butch had also picked up a drinking habit along the way, because of course he had. And once he had a drink in him, there was only one side to Butch, and it wasn't pretty. As if the money he made at the dealership wasn't enough, and it was considerable, Butch had also taken to stealing outboard motors. Hmm. Because we're in a boat town. Lots of people have boats, much like here. So he would just steal them and sell them. And was actually caught and arrested for that one, because it's not a very, like, stealth crime. You can't carry around a motor in your pocket. (laughs) This old thing? Oh, I just, I don't know where this came from. I'll just put it in my pocket, it's fine. And that, for that reason, this one gets me the most because Butch was never wanted for money whatsoever. So this act is just purely for the love of chaos. Mm. And he did other wild things too. Here are a few examples. One afternoon, while out on a hunting trip with some friends, out of nowhere, Butch pointed his loaded rifle at one of his friends. He watched with a Sony expression as the young man's face turned white. He fled, and Butch calmly lowered his gun. When they caught up with their friend later that afternoon, Butch asked, Why'd you leave so soon? We were just having fun. Aiming guns at each other. That was great. Uh, Gee, I don't know, Butch. Sherry Klein, his girlfriend at the time of the murders, also recalls an incident when Butch went to her apartment with some friends. They became very rowdy, and when she tried to calm him down, he shoved her across the room. The girlfriend had to climb through a window to escape him and ran to her parents' house. I want to know more about this girlfriend. What... She just climbed out her own window. Yeah. No, like, why was to she go? dating him? <laughs> I don't know. I don't trust her choices. I mean, we don't know much about Jerry Klein. I didn't go into her. All right. Well, from the little I know. We're, we're disapproving she, of Sherry Klein. Okay. So in October of 1974, Butch decides he's bored and dissatisfied with the money he's making at the car dealership and hatches a plan. He is tasked that day with depositing $1,800 in cash and $20,000 in checks at the bank for the Buick dealership. Like, who trusts that kid? You barely ever come to work. You're the boss's kid. You're not doing a great job. I'm going to give you all of our money. It'll be fine. It wasn't fine. Instead of doing what he was supposed to, Butch and his friends staged a phony robbery. They returned to the dealership without the cash and claimed that they had been held up at gunpoint while waiting at a red light and all the money was gone. Big Ronnie. Did that happen? (laughs) Yeah, that happens all the time, right? Big Ronnie, of course, called the damn cops immediately. And Butch totally forgot that that was a thing. And oh boy, he was not prepared to talk to law enforcement. You can't just, oh well, $22,000. I don't know what he thought was going to happen. But when faced with the police, Butch was very irritable, nasty, and uncooperative, which his father hated. He said, quote, you've got the devil on your back. Oh. And Butch responded, quote, you fat prick, I'll kill you. Hmm. This is a fun fight. <laughs> At the police station. <laughs> then he ran to his car and sped off, not looking suspicious at all. Butch had actually threatened to kill his father once before when he stepped in during an altercation between Big Ronnie and his mother Louise. Butch had turned a shotgun on his father and told him to leave his mother alone and then pulled the trigger. Mm, Father and sons. I know. But nothing happened because the gun had jammed. Oh. I know. You'd think like, all right, maybe we get him out of the house. He did intend on shooting me. So back to November 13th, 1974. 
Earlier that day, before the heinous discovery and the bar crying, Butch had spent the morning at work and then the afternoon at Henry's bar. He told Bobby and the boys that he hadn't been able to contact his parents all day and he was afraid something had happened. He told them he was going to go over there and break through a window to get in. A strange remark, given that he lived there and probably had a key. Yep. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they were like, when the door's locked, you can't come in. I'm sorry, we trust you with nothing. Yeah. Maybe not a bad choice on their part, I should say. When he came back to the bar after saying he was going to go break in the window, that's when he was shouting that they were dead. Oh. So now we have six dead bodies and Butch. The medical examiner reported that all of the DeFeos had died of gunshot wounds at close range. The gunman was approximately two feet away from them and that four of the six had been sleeping when they were shot. It appeared that Louise had woken up and covered herself with a blanket, like trying to protect herself with a blanket from a gun. It's not going to help. So sad. I know, it's sad. Before two bullets ended her. And Dawn had either sat up or rolled over to look the gunman in the face before he shot her in hers. All the DeFeos were killed at approximately 3 a.m. with the same rifle, 35 caliber lever-action Marlin 336C rifle. The bullets were all present at the scene. And in case you don't know guns like I don't know guns, that's a spicy meatball. Oh. The bullets are big. How big? Like, like big. Like big bullets. Ooh. Yeah. So that's why you didn't have to shoot a whole lot. Toxicology screens revealed that none of the DeFeos had drugs in their system. And the strangest detail of them all, when questioned by the police, none of their neighbors reported to hearing anything. Hmm. No gunshots. And not the DeFeo's sheepdog Shaggy, who had been chained up. And don't worry, not killed. Okay. The dog lives. <laughs> I know. Everyone's really always worried about the dog. I didn't read any dog killing in this one on purpose. But he wasn't barking at gunshots, which is curious, considering he's a, he's a dog. Naturally, the police immediately turned to Butch. I imagine all of their heads just snapped in his direction at once with like a cartoon sound effect in the background. And he, well, he had more than one story to tell them. But first, he asked them when he might be seeing his father's life insurance policy. Oh, that's not good. Not a good look, Butch. <laughs> in the interest of time, I'm not going to give you, I'm now going to give you, sorry, a lightning round of Butch DeFeo's year-long rambling session with the cops um, that... I will tell you now, resulted in him being handed six life sentences and a guilty verdict for murder. Okay. First, he told the police that he thought it was a mob hit carried out by a man named Louis Fellini. His father's family mob ties, and perhaps he had mob ties, rather, and perhaps he owed them money. But in a more detailed search of the home, the cops went into Butch's room, and then they found the box for the rifle and the discarded shells from the bullets, along with bank receipts that detailed Butch stealing, I don't know, $22,000 from a Buick dealership. Oh, man, did the mafia plan it there? <laughs> they all did, yep. Wow. It was all the mob the whole time. At one point, he told them he was locked in the bathroom when the mob entered his house, but they were like, no, you weren't, and he said, you're right, I wasn't. Oh. Yeah. He's bad at it. I know, he's really bad at lying, but he tries super hard. When faced with this, Butch immediately admitted to shooting them all. He said, quote, once I started, I just couldn't stop. It went so fast. He admitted that he had taken a bath and changed his clothing and then detailed where he had discarded crucial evidence like the blood-stained clothing and the Marlin rifle, which was just outside in the leaves. 
and cartridges before going to work as usual, and then he headed to Henry's bar. He claimed that he heard voices in the home, voices that told him to do it, and he didn't know why. I'm going to spare you all of the legal stuff and conspiracy theories tonight because that isn't what we're here for, and we still have a haunting to talk about. In a nutshell, after his confession, Butch panicked and tried to blame as many other people as humanly possible. First, he said his mother had done it, which I don't, come on, man, I don't, she's dead, face down, with the covers up, that doesn't add up. Then he claimed that he and his sister Dawn had planned on killing his parents because they were threatening to kill him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he said he did it in self-defense. He said he shot his parents, but then Dawn shot the children, which he did not like, and so he shot Dawn. Okay, that adds up. I mean, it does add up when you look at the way the events went down, but again, the rest of it doesn't. Okay. Gunpowder evidence threatened to prove that Dawn had been holding the rifle when it went off, but then forensic experts stepped in and were quickly able to debunk that pretty fast. Butch's insanity plea, which which you know he had, was denied, and he went to jail, where he stayed until until he died just this past March. Oh. I know. All right, dead butch. I don't know what got him. Maybe it was COVID. Who knows? Had COVID just like the Tiger King. It's a rough time. Um, And there are a lot of conspiracy theories here, but I don't buy it. Butch shot his family because he was angry, traumatized, and a greedy, callous man with an unchecked mental illness. Every single fact adds up to that. The kids were merely liabilities once the parents were dead, and so they also had to go. So now we have a fully furnished house in a highly desirable neighborhood that was the site of six grisly murders. We have a killer who claims to have begun hearing voices in the house that instructed him to kill his entire family. And we have one very, very nervous realtor. What's their name? What's a good nervous realtor name? A realtor, however we're pronouncing it now. Mm. Susie? Ooh, yeah. Okay. Susie, all right. Mm-hmm. Susie. Karen. Karen. Oh, no. <laughs> I would say it's probably Suzanne, but she tells Suzanne. her clients call her Susie. Because she's a fun realtor. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I like it. So, for 13 months, 112 Ocean sat empty. The formerly friendly home had seen unspeakable deeds, and some would say that they had left an impression. A traumatic life event can certainly scar a person forever, but now the topic we're facing is, can it scar a location? Certainly from a selling standpoint, this was going to be an uphill battle, as New York has full disclosure laws when it comes to selling murder houses. But what of the property itself? Had anything spectral been left behind? Can anything really recover from what that house just saw? Let's find out. Part two, the haunting. There are many theories as to what lurks within the house at 112 Ocean in Amityville. And even if you're a non-believer, the story I'm about to tell you might change your mind. Some say the house is cursed. Some say the house is possessed. Some say the house is haunted. I can't tell you which one it is. But what I can do is arm you with a little information before we get into what happened there in the two years following the DeFeo family murders. So, Leslie, why don't you help us out with a little paranormal sorting session? Okay. Tell us about ghosties. Sure. All right. All right. 
So just as far as I can go on this, I would think that this house is either either has a poltergeist or a demon. Okay, now and those are two theories that are very widely suggested, mm-hmm, either mm-hmm. poltergeist activity or a demon. Okay. So I'm gonna briefly tell you guys the difference, because it's there is a difference between all three of these ghosts, demons, and poltergeists. They are not the same at all. It's an education we should all have. <laughs> And, uh, and then there's going to be a quiz, and I'm just going to, you guys are going to answer back to me, like, what you think it is, okay? So, it's okay. You I can't fail. You, you can, can only win or not yeah. win. You can only learn. You're only going to learn. We're so, all learning today. <laughs> so, ghosts specifically were once humans. That's very simply, they lived, they were a soul, that's, that's a ghost, okay? Okay. A Got demon it. was never a human. Oh. It is just a creature. It's like a evil, godly being. And generally, it is just attached to, like, relig- like, religion. So people that don't... Some people don't even believe demons exist. Okay. Okay. And then poltergeist is more like a phenomenon. So, like, mm. they originate within a person and feed on their negative energy. Ew. So like you're the like you are the person that creates a poltergeist. Oh, you make it yourself? And it's attached to you. That is very interesting mm-hmm. cuz that's exactly the kind of thing we're talking about here. Yes. Okay. okay. All right. I'm on board. Hmm? Yes. Yes, just like the Buffy episode. Oh, no. <laughs> she okay. knows. I don't know, she knows. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to ask some questions. <gasps> I'm going to say it in like uh well, you, well you'll see. Okay. Oh, okay. So you're either going to answer with ghost poltergeist or demon okay ready and look to john and the uh, what is it <laughs> he'll know all the answers the <laughs> who are you supposed to be obviously oh, the, oh, the, oh i'm so yeah beautiful okay so look to you're, the blood you're countess. my countess <laughs> i am an earthbound being ghost correct i am an i am a manifestation of negative energy Perfect. Easy ones to start. I am a fallen angel, an evil creature, and a lower being. Perfect. Okay, now let's go a little harder. Look at this crowd. Look at you. All right. Smart. Right? <laughs> Catholics fear me. Me. <laughs> Not me? All right. I feed off the vulnerable and troubled. Demon. Oh, mm-hmm. you said you were going to get it wrong. Yeah. False. Okay. I feed off the emotional state of a living person, especially teens full of angst. Teens. Poltergeist. It's always teens. It is. Well, because they oh. are, because teenagers and pre-pubescent teens, yeah, are, um, they, their, their hormones are high. So I mean, yeah. Yeah. So they uh yeah, so poltergeist generally can like come from them. Um all right. I am an angry and violent non-corporal entity and love lashing out. Poltergeist. Well, yes. Whoa, 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 mm-hmm. whoa. Because it's non-corporal. So a demon can become like can be an entity, but poltergeist can never actually they can maybe show, like, an apparition, but they're never going to be, like, like, they don't... So they just do stuff. They don't appear yeah. as, like, an actual thing. A lot of people think that a ghost oh, who is no. then being mean is a poltergeist. Lizzie. Like, if a ghost picks up things and is, like, throwing them, they're like, that's a poltergeist. Like, no, that's just a ghost. You know that means Harry Potter is wrong. I know. It's okay. It's all right. Oh, no. Whoop. 
I love to haunt a space. Me. Ghost. Oh. <laughs> I want to be all of them. I love to infest a space. Demon. <laughs> um, and then we'll do one more. We'll do one more. One more, okay. one more, one more. Mm -hmm. I'm a troubled soul. Teens. Ghost, because it's a soul, <laughs> right? And then actually, here's two more. I require an exorcism to be banished. Demons. Yep. You guys got mm -hmm. it. Okay. So the other fun facts. Okay. So about poltergeists, because I have a feeling. Okay. So a, a demon, for instance, if it's a demon in this house. Yeah. It can, a demon can take the form of a, of a place or a person okay. or its own creature. We're going to see some of that. Yeah. And then they're angry. They're annoying. They like to play trick. They're like a lot more like they're tricksters. And then you have a poltergeist that is um, formed, they, they attach to the person that is like projecting that energy. So say Butch was, you know, as he was okay. festering and getting more angry, this like poltergeist was like going and going. Yum, 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 yum. Yes. You're it was so feeding. mad. It was so, mm. yeah. Okay. It was eating a lot. So then what will happen is, is at the longer, because this was years, Butch was like this, right? Yeah. So if this poltergeist had formed from Butch, then what would have happened was he would have been getting stronger because he's getting fed all the time. And then he would have started to independently start to think on its own. Oh, shit. To the point where in order to get rid of a poltergeist, you have to, all, all you generally have to do if you feel like you have a poltergeist attached to you or somebody around you has a poltergeist attached to them, you just have to like even them out, calm them down, yeah. get them balanced. That's it. And then it will go away. But if you wait so too easy. long... And that poltergeist has a mind of its own. It'll be like, um, I'm going to get everyone in this house angry because I don't want to leave. Or it's going to be like, the neighbors next door look like they're fighting. I'm going to jump over there now because oh. <laughs> you're all relaxed. Send them to your neighbors. Yep. I like that idea. Yeah. Perfect. And then for like a ghost, you just need like some sage and shit like that. We have John for that. Yeah. <laughs> That's or fine. just ask it to leave. You're going to be like, I'm done with you. Can, Can you, you go? go, please? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, so, so now we know um, the three types of possible entities in this home, or at least the ones that people have thrown at a wall to see if they stick. If you have other theories, you can tell us after the show. I will listen to all of them. Well, maybe not all of them. Like, let's not get carried away. So, naturally, after the DeFeos were removed and their blood was bleached out of the floorboards, the house went on sale for a drastically reduced price. You see, that's what we need to find. You need to find a murder house. Perfect. Then it's cheap. Yep. And, and this seems big enough for like both of our families. I mean, yeah. And it was sold fully furnished. Oh. This is something I was unaware of. All of the DeFeo's furniture, artwork, window treatments, and appliances remained in the house and came with the sale. Mm. Yeah. Well, with the exception of the beds, for obvious reasons, and the life-size portraits Louise's father had commissioned of the family, they're terrifying, and the family kept those. I would have dumpstered all that stuff so fast, but the Lutzes, they saw a good deal when they got one. Okay. Free couch. Doesn't matter that it's a murder couch, I'm going to keep it. I mean, they weren't murdering on the couch. No, the couch was there. I mean, maybe the poltergeist is in the couch. Maybe it's the couchergeist. Maybe. maybe. Well, it has to find another, like... Well, yeah, I guess it can. No, it has to find a, another living being to attach to. Maybe the couch was alive. You don't know. I don't. You're okay. right. I wasn't there. And so, for the low, low price of $80,000, a wealthy man named George Lutz bought the house. 
in December of, I know, $80,000 for a five-bedroom, three-and-a-half-bath house in, like, riverfront New York. I, it's bananas. Anyway. But it's full yeah. of awful, <laughs> so there's a reason. Uh, okay. And in December of 1976, George, his new wife, Catherine, and her three children, Daniel, who goes by Danny, Christopher, and Melissa, moved in. Now, this family, family is curious in size and structure, curiously like, I should say, the DeFeos. We have a very similar family, and we will soon discover we have a very similar dynamic. A little bit about the Lutzes. Unlike Big Ronnie DeFeo, it was not clear, it was clear, sorry, that George could afford this house, discount or not. George was a land surveyor and a former Marine. According to Kathy's youngest son, Danny, he said George swooped in with fancy cars and motorcycles and swept his mother off her feet. George and Kathy were married, and soon after, George adopted all three children as his own. This may seem like a beautiful family sentiment, but I assure you, it is not. Mm. Your reactions were, like, perfect. (laughs) That was great, Leslie. (laughs) Kathy's first husband and the father of her three children was still very much involved in their lives at the time. Before the divorce, the five of them had lived happily as a family unit. The kids knew and loved their real father. But George, quote, didn't want his name on anything that wasn't his. So, when he proposed to Kathy, he said he would only marry her if her ex-husband gave up his parental rights and the kids were legally his. They would also have to take the last name Lutz. If they lived in his house, they had to belong to him. He didn't love them and want to be their daddy or anything. He simply wanted to own them, just in case. As adults, all three children changed their surnames back to Quarantino, their original last name. So, that tells you how much they liked being a Lutz. None of them um, had even been asked if they wanted to be a Lutz. They were just given that last name. Now, this is a common theme in the Lutz household. It was George's way or the highway, much like Big Ronnie DeFeo. Previously existing in a loving household and then attempting to help care for their single mother, the Quarantino kids were not used to violence. They were mild-mannered and sweet. But George, who knew nothing about parenting but plenty about being a Marine, changed everything. After they were married, George laid out strict rules. He was harsh with the children and would occasionally hit Kathy. He disciplined the children with physical violence, having Kathy also hit them with a wooden spoon when he felt they misbehaved. Even though they took his last name, the kids did not call George dad. They were to call him sir, or if they could not call him sir, they were to call him Mr. Lutz. That's 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 a fun home life, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Living in George's house all together was cramped, so when they moved to Amityville, the kids thought they might have a little room to breathe. Danny, their youngest son, was especially at odds with George. He felt singled out by his violence, much like Butch DeFeo. The two never liked each other, and so Danny was looking forward to spending time in the boathouse away from George. He thought this might give them the space they needed to coexist. The children were excited about the house. It was beautiful and big, and right before they signed the papers... Kathy casually mentioned to them that, oh, by the way, six people were murdered in this house last year, but it's totally fine now. She asked if the kids were okay with this, and being kids presented with a big, ginormous house, they all said yes. I'd have said no, but I'm not them, so. Uh, Yeah, I would have ran so fast. You would have been gone. Gone. What? No. I would have found another house for us to live in. You would. I would have, have figured it out. I know. You As like been six years old, I'd very be like, Don't worry, I got this. <laughs> very organized child with real estate. <laughs> in addition, into being shocked into a life 
of strict rules and physical punishment, the kids were horrified to discover that George had some rather dark interests. Outwardly a devout Methodist, George kept an extensive collection of books on satanic rituals, human sacrifice, the occult, telekinesis, mind control, and black magic on a large bookshelf. The children, who were raised Catholic, didn't love this. Yeah. So I know that is in a lot of places as like a, a thing that people think isn't true, but it is true. George had all of those books, and he did have quite a fascination with the darker side of things. And none of us can particularly judge him for that, as we are all here. Yeah. So. It's like, they all sound like books I have. I know, same. <laughs> Disclaimer, Satanists are cool. They don't sacrifice anything and spend most of their time fighting for basic human rights for everyone in their community. They're not the enemy. The weirdos who misrepresent them are. Just saying. You're Satanist. Yeah. I signed up. <laughs> On the day the family moved into the house in Amityville, everyone was buzzing with excitement. They had packed all their belongings up into trucks themselves, no movers, and had driven them to their new location. They parked, stepped out, and basked in the glory of their new home. Melissa, their daughter, stood stock still on the front lawn, fixated on one of the half-moon windows, not speaking. When asked later what she was looking at, Melissa said that there was a girl in the window. Or at least, it had the body of the girl, but the head was that of a pig with glowing red eyes. I don't like that well, at all. We're off to a good start. <laughs> After they took a moment to breathe the experience in and apparently see a flame-eyed pig girl, the family all got to work unloading boxes. And in the shuffle, the kids noticed the arrival of a family friend, a man named Fa Father Ralph Pecorero. <laughs> Sorry. You guys don't usually get to hear me mess up all my words because John is a good editor and he takes that out. Um, <laughs> But <laughs> poor Father Ralph, I don't want to do him dirty like that. I don't know what he is. But Father Ralph was only there for a few moments. He got out his holy water, said a few prayers, went up the stairs, and then came down far faster than he had went up and left without uttering a single word. That's not good. No, it is no good. You don't want a priest running from your home. Kathy was very confused. Later, he would tell them that when he got to the third floor, Father Ralph felt a horrible presence and heard the words, get out. But that was his job. He was supposed to be there to get rid he of them. He did not do his job. I don't know what to tell like, you. They weren't bringing him over to just like bless their beautiful home. They no. brought him over to get rid of like a Bless demonic... my murder home, yeah. yes. And then he was like, I heard a spirit told me to get out. That's then... the name of my autobiography now. Bless my murder home. Sorry, he didn't do his job. He did not do his job. He also, there are some sources that claim that after this experience, Father George, uh, not George, Father Ralph, experienced like a rash on his hands that re um, resembled stigmata. So that's yeah. pretty interesting. I don't have a lot of confirmation on that, but it is an interesting fact, and so I decided I'd give it to you. So after he heard the words get out echoing through the empty room, Father Ralph was not one to argue, so he got out. After Father Ralph left, Danny had the task, little Danny, remember, of bringing the boxes of toys up to their new playroom. When he got there, he opened the door and was horrified to be met with hundreds and hundreds of swarming black flies. It was December in New York, by the way, not fly season. This was very unusual. He screamed and called for his mother, who saw the flies and ran horrified from the room on site. Danny went back in, though, and with a newspaper, began to swat. 
He had killed about a hundred of them and when, then went down to tell his mother he wanted to show her his progress. Now, Danny at this point in time is like a seven-year-old kid, so killing a bunch of flies was like a really great thing that he did. But when his mother and Danny returned to the room, all the flies had vanished. Convenient. Mm-hmm. The newspaper he claimed to use lay on the floor in the room, untouched. During their time in the house, everyone's personality, everyone in the Lutz family, that is, seemed to shift. The ladies were calm and placid most of the time. You'll be happy to know that the women do much better in these stories. Melissa would spend hours in her room playing with Jody, her imaginary friend, which sounds cute until you remember it was the big girl. (laughs) And then it's less cute. Kathy would just occasionally zone out into catatonic dreamy trances, only to be awoken by George or Danny in a rage. Both of them seemed to have sharpened their tempers considerably since moving in. George was a tornado of anger, a domineering presence who bullied his family around at will. Are we sensing a theme here? That St. Joseph statue is pretty ironic now, isn't it? Patron saint of fatherhood. No good. The house took on a life of its own. There were cold spots throughout it that would not warm up no matter how high they ran the heat and they replaced all of the in- insulation and all of like the weather stripping because they thought the house was just drafty. It wasn't. It was full of ghosts. Or demons or poltergeists. We'll figure out which one later. <laughs> George himself would complain that he could never get warm in that house even though Kathy and the children were perfectly comfortable. Doors would swing open and slam shut on their own. Their dog, Harry, would bark viciously into the abyss as though... Oh, man. (laughs) All right. Demon, ghost, or poltergeist? Uh Harry would bark viciously into the abyss as though he saw something they did not. George began waking up every single night at precisely 3.15. This is the time that some say Butch DeFeo began his massacre. One day, Danny was out in the yard when he looked up at the house and saw, standing in his sister's bedroom window, what he described as a girl with the head of a pig that had the eyes and snout of a wolf. Which is so gross. But it was staring at him menacingly, and so he ran inside. I mean, don't run towards it. I would have run somewhere else. But when he got to his sister's room where the pig-wolf girl was supposed to be, the room was empty. A lone rocking chair swayed back and forth in the center of the floor. I knew you were going to hate that. I don't like it. I know you don't like it. On another day, Danny was out in the backyard, but this time with George doing some yard work, when the garage door began opening and slamming shut on its own. This is a, like an up and down this way garage door. We're not talking about doors like this. We're talking about a big door. Um, and at the sight of this, Their terrified dog, Harry, began barking and growling and trying to run toward the garage, but he was tethered in the backyard with a leash. He tried to jump the fence to get out of it, but the leash caught and the dog began to hang himself dangling from the fence. He doesn't die. Told you the dog doesn't die. (laughs) Danny watched him struggle in disbelief for a moment before before George yelled, Danny, get him. And Danny went to get the dog down. Thankfully, he was able to. George reported seeing a greenish-black slime oozing from the walls and staircase, which is in the movies, and he later um, admits is a total lie, by the way. The slime thing is not real. (laughs) That's an embellishment. I don't even like saying it. So after Christmas that year, it ended, and the Feast of the Epiphany had passed, which is apparently when Catholics are supposed to take their decorations down or something. Mm -hmm. Family? Do we know this? I think so. 
Yeah, January 6th. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Black Phillip, for that religious advice. (laughs) 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 That's my cousin. It's okay. (laughs) So after they took the decorations down, suddenly a sickly fetid smell began to permeate the entire house. It smelled rotten and festering, like, well, like death. Danny began feeling an invisible force push him. It would slam him into walls or throw him up the stairs. All the while, his head in his head, he would hear what he called a sub-bass, rumbling, garbled voice, whispering horrible things inside his head. It wanted him to hurt people. It wanted him to make his family suffer. George had heard those voices too. They reported that these instances made them feel hollow, like the numbness that came after an electrical shock. George also reported that Kathy's appearance would change every now and then. He claimed that one evening he turned to his lovely wife and she had the face of a haggard old crone. But when he asked her what had happened, Kathy couldn't understand why George was so upset. She remained like that for the better part of two hours before gradually morphing back into herself. Oh, man. I know. Then, on January 14th, 1976, something happened that drove the Lutzes from their home in the middle of the night, leaving all their possessions behind never to return again. So their stuff, and the DePeo stuff, which is still there, stayed in the house. For a while, they refused to talk about what happened, but eventually they revealed that George woke at his usual 3 a.m. to the sound of his boys screaming. He looked next to him, expecting to see Kathy, but the bed was empty. Panicked, George sat up, and that's when he saw her. Kathy hung in the air three feet above the bed, still sleeping. Her nightdress trailing behind her, hair cascading into the empty air. He ran into the boys' room to find their beds levitating and slamming into one another, the frightened boys screaming in their beds. After getting everyone down, George called Father Ralph. He said it was an emergency and asked him to come to the house. First of all, points for Father Ralph. He answered the phone at like 4 a.m., Priest emergency, gotta answer the phone. All right. But Father Ralph refused to come to the house and asked him in astonishment, quote, George, why are you still there? With that, they all left in their nightclothes without a single thing but their dog and their car. Their possessions were later sent for them, sent to them, sorry, as they refused to enter the house ever again. Understandable. I know. The story of the Lust family fleeing their newly acquired murder house in the middle of the night did not go unnoticed. For the first week or so, they refused to talk to the press. But when they were approached by a reporter from Channel 5 named Laura Didio, who told them she had a lot of connections to reputable parapsychologists, George relented. Try to say reputable parapsychologists. It's not an easy one. Good job. And let her in. He told the whole story to Laura, and she ate it up, publishing the whole thing on the nightly news. She spoke to George and Kathy, but not the children claiming she wanted to respect their privacy. Later in life, Danny would go on to say that he wished she had spoken to him, for reasons we will soon discover. Laura put George in touch with the renowned parapsychologist and self-proclaimed demonologists, Ed and Lorraine Warren. I know! (laughs) Cheers for Ed and Lorraine. They are big deals in this genre. Whose names may sound awfully familiar, obviously, to the horror fans in the crowd tonight. So, Leslie... Before we move on, why don't you give us all a little bit about the Warrens? Sure. We've talked about them before. I know. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So the Warrens, 
Um, Edward Warren Minnie was born September 7th, 1926 in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Oh, Connecticut. Always rearing its head. Always. <laughs> when Ed was five, he claimed he saw an apparition, a dot of light that grew until it became his family's landlady, who had died the year before. Okay. I thought, I, when I first read it, I thought that the dot formed into what became his family's landlady. Like... <laughs> It's like a it Beetlejuice just, moment. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, hello. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it was just like, I work for you now. <laughs> Take a seat. Yeah. Good. Uh, <laughs> she was semi-transparent, wearing what looked like some sort of shroud. Then she vanished. Soon after, he was having dreams of dead relatives he'd never met before. So I don't, I don't know. There was a moth on you. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, including his aunt, who would send him messages about his future, telling him that he would help many priests, but never become a priest himself, which is... Always exactly a bridesmaid, never a bride. For sure. Got it. <laughs> Lorraine Rita Morin was born on January 31st, 1927, and is also from Bridgeport, Connecticut. Man alive. Yep. Uh, Holly, did you know that I was born in Bridgeport, Connecticut? Sure did. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> that I did know. Lorraine began having paranormal experiences when she was young, too, but didn't realize her visions were unusual until she was about 12. She tells a story of when she was at her girls or at her all girls private school and she and her classmates were planting a sapling for Arbor Day. Cute. Just as soon as they put the sapling in the ground, she saw it like fully grow into a tree. The leaves were like going. It was like really beautiful. So she's okay. staring at it and the nun is looking at her like, why are you staring up into the sky? Because there's obviously nothing she's there right now. Creepy kid looking up into the sky. And she's like, I'm looking up at the tree. No. And then the nun, who I imagine was like very sarcastic and annoyed, just like, stop doing that, was just like, like, oh, are you like seeing the future? And yeah, Lorraine would tell her like, yes, I guess I am. Exactly. Uh -huh. And from then on, she was a superhuman. So <laughs> because she could see a tr fully formed tree. Yeah. You see a tree, then you got powers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know what to tell you. Ed worked at a movie theater that Lorraine and her mother frequented. And in 1944, when they were both 16, they began dating. Ed went off to fight in World War II and enlisted in the Navy. After about four months, he was sent home for a 30-day survivor's leave after his ship went down in North Atlantic Sea. Mm -hmm. During this short period, he and Lorraine were married, and he went back to the Navy. And then about nine months later, uh, Lorraine gave birth to their daughter, Judy. Oh, Judy. Yeah. How is this life for you? I'm going to talk about Tell that. me about it. Sorry. Right. I don't know, Judy. I'm excited. <laughs> So when Ed returned home, the two of them thought that they were going to make their living as art artists. They both considered themselves painters. Ed, who believed he grew up in a haunted house, convinced his wife to travel around the area and sketch haunted houses. He I would... want one of those. <laughs> well, Lorraine Warren. You got to just like take her around. And... <laughs> yeah. He would basically find homes in the newspaper that would claim they were haunted, and then they would go to the houses, sketch them, knock on the door, and offer them the sketch for the information about the haunting. It's <laughs> a good business model. So then they spent five years going around the U.S. painting and investigating haunted houses. All right. Okay. Ed and Lorraine were practicing Roman Catholics and believed that they were doing exactly what God wanted them to. Ed became a self-taught ghost hunter, and Lorraine put herself forward as a medium who could communicate with spirits. She used right, her Lorraine. gifts. Gotta use your gifts. Mm -hmm. They did not charge anyone for their services, but they used their cases to help their careers and made a lot of money off of them. Oh, I was gonna say, that's a bad business model. Yeah, I don't... You can't do it for free. I know. Okay. Uh, when they were not investigating hauntings, they kept themselves busy with writing books. I believe there's like nine published. They gave lectures. They consulted on films based on their cases. 
we'll talk about. Um, okay, so I got really curious about their daughter, Judy. Judy, tell me about Judy. I was like, what was her life like? Um, I found what out could that, it be like? I found out that she actually lived with her grandparents. Yeah. Because her parents traveled, like, too much. So, um, and she also says that she was terrified of their house and hated sleeping there. She, she specifically hated Annabelle. Well, their house was the filled with all the relics the Warrens yeah. had collected over the years. So, like, we talked about Annabelle. They had Annabelle in their house. Yeah. In, like, a little glass box. For safety. Yeah, so obviously she hated yeah. sleeping there. Yeah, as a kid, you'd want to leave, obviously. She still talks about that. She's like, Annabelle. I don't blame her. <laughs> uh, Judy met her husband, Tony Sherpa, uh, in 1979. Uh, Judy didn't want to take over her parents' legacy or have anything to do with their museum, but also didn't want their legacy to be forgotten. So Tony happily stepped in. But he actually had, like, once they met, they actually, um, he worked with the Warrens for, like, up until their death. Okay, Tony. Yeah. So he knows all about it. Um, Tony knows. And he is, he still is actively investigating dynamic activity. And he is currently the director of the New England Society for Psychic Research, which the Warrens founded in 1952. All right. And head curator of the Warren Occult Museum located in Monroe, Connecticut. I want to go there. Yeah. Why haven't we gone there? We drive through Connecticut all, like, every time we go to Salem. Okay. So... I also wanted to know about how they made their money because they clearly weren't making any money at the beginning of their lives. So no. I was like, I don't understand how they, they did this life. They live lavishly, though. Right. And they were always traveling, but I didn't know how they got money to travel. Okay. Either. So Tell I, us, I was like, maybe just from the Navy, maybe he was getting state, I don't know what okay. he was getting. All right. But I uncovered something darker. <laughs> oh, of course. Why wouldn't you? <laughs> That's a completely different story. But Uh-oh. okay. So, first I learned that Ed got out of the Navy, and he took art classes and sold many of his paintings for money. Okay. Um, but I don't think that's really how they survived financially. I think it was more accurate that he worked a lot of odd jobs for a while, one of which was a city bus driver in Monroe, Connecticut, uh, a young 15-year-old girl named Judith Penne. So, there's another Judy, and I'll just call her Judy, Penny. Judy, Judy, Judy. All over. Yeah. Uh, she was a student at Central High School in Bridgeport who rode the bus and who Ed found to be very attractive. Uh-oh. Soon, they started an affair. No. So this is, um, only this account is obviously from Judy. There's a few other people, but it's like, obviously it's what the victim is saying oh, in this. Oh, no, so Ed. Here is, here is this dark story. So soon after they started the affair, um, according to Penny, Lorraine was aware of the affair. When Penny turned 18, she moved in with the Warrens, and Ed and her continued their relationship for the next 40 years. They just... That just continued. And this is, we can prove that she lived with them. Oh my God, she lived with them? Yeah, she moved in right after she turned 18. That's awful. To the public, Penny was their niece or an orphan that had nowhere else to live following a childhood of neglect. Ew. Penny would also act as a caretaker of their home whenever the couple went on the road, which was often, because um, they just like, they also have a daughter that could do this. <laughs> I hate this so much. I did not know. Penny has said that Ed was abusive to Lorraine, having seen him yell and backhand her on several occasions. Ed! I know, because they depict, I guess in the movie The Conjuring, which is one of the movies based on um, one of the houses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they they show them as like a very happy and loving couple. So this is one of the reasons why uh, this woman came forward. She was like, that wasn't what it was like. And um, and Ed Ed, Ed had since died since that movie came out. Everywhere portrays them as kindly old weirdos. Yeah. They're like weird old people, but they're nice like your grandparents. Mm-hmm. 
And lastly, Penny also opened up about when she found out she was pregnant. This no, is a horrible story. Penny! She was in her 30s, and she told the Warrens. Lorraine and Ed wanted her to tell the public no. that an intruder came in and raped her. Oh. But she didn't want to do that. So no. instead, Lorraine made her get an abortion to fa- so that they didn't have to face the public. Devoutly Catholic Lorraine. Cool. Yeah. So when their daughter Judy is asked about this, this other Judy... Um, her story, like asked about that story, Judy only says that she doesn't remember seeing any abuse in the home and doesn't think that there was an affair. But remember, Judy never lived with her parents. And when she was probably there, I would suspect that they were on their best behavior. That is so bizarre. Yeah. So, okay. Ew. I know, that was like weird, but it was like, they, they're always portrayed as like a Man, nice family. I and maybe them they until are, now. But yeah, I thought it was, I thought I'd do my due diligence you and did mention do- that. Did your due diligence. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So some of the movies based on the Lorraine, uh, the Ed and Lorraine Warren cases are, I can say words today. You got it. Um, We're Annabelle, almost done. Annabelle, right? Annabelle, so yeah. Uh, the uh, Perron family, which was The Conjuring. Yes. Uh, the that Amityville, obviously. We're talking about that today. Ta-da! That was also the um, Amityville horror and the beginning portion, I think, of The Conjuring 2. I've never seen these. I probably won't, so they're terrifying. No, you can't. <laughs> We can't let we can't let her see them. <laughs> the Enfield Poltergeist was about the Conjuring Two. The Snedeker House was about the haunting in Connecticut. The Snedeker, yeah, yeah. Uh, the the Smurl family was a Smurl. TV movie, The Haunted, and then there was the Union Cemetery one, which was a book that um, Ed wrote. It was called The Graveyard: The True Hauntings of New England Cemetery. Oh, but uh, Judith. The other, the... Judith, daughter Judith. No. No, pregnant Judith. The other, she said... Terrible. She said that she actually went with Ed to that cemetery, and he took pictures of her in a white dress. And it was just supposed to be as, like, a... Like, just to show people, like, what the ghost might have looked like. But he then portrayed that as the actual vision that he saw. Well, we're going to see the Warrens had a relationship with photography in a minute. Um, Oh, man, you guys, I like Dead in the Rain. But, like I said... I mean, I like to side on, on the voice of the victim. Right. But that's the, there's no other connections there. So in this case, the Warrens were actually very good to the Lutz's children, which we'll get to in a minute. But, like, I guess not good entirely. Ed and Lorraine performed a thorough investigation of the Amityville home. And Lorraine was secretly clutching a relic of Padre Pio, a priest who was later canonized by the Catholic Church the entire time. Interestingly enough, later on in an interview with Danny Lutz, uh, not Lutz, sorry, Quarantino. He doesn't go by Lutz. Um, she brought out a piece of, like, a framed piece of wood, or so, it was like this little thing, and she's like, "This is wood from the cross Jesus was crucified on. You can kiss it." And then he was like, "Yeah, I can kiss it," and he was real into it. It was very bizarre. Again, they're just weird old people. Anyway, the Warrens later said that the home was possessed by the most powerful demons they had ever encountered. So, in their opinion, mm-hmm. demon. But not just demon, there were also ghosts in there, too. It was a party. They felt the presence strongly, and Lorraine compared it to being pushed underwater, cold, heavy, and airless. They suspected the house was possessed, and the demons therein had taken over George briefly, as well as Butch DeFeo before him. The Warrens even caught one of the ghosts on film. This picture is going to mess with a lot of your heads. During the investigation, that was attended by quite a few other people, including journalists. The Warrens took a bunch of pictures. One of them captured the image of a little boy with glowing eyes peering around the staircase. And yet, 
There are like 10 people who were at the place, the place in time where this photo was taken and there were no little boys in attendance. Yeah. Lorraine said it was little John Matthew DeFeo who had been trapped in the house by the terrible events that befell him and his family. And it's a great story, but we all know the photography, as Leslie mentioned, is rather unreliable. There are lots and lots of other myths about the house as well, namely that it was built on an indigenous burial ground. It wasn't. Or that the land had been possessed by the famous violent land surveyor and brutal murderer of indigenous people, John Ketchum. It wasn't. John Ketchum had never been to Amityville, or Salem for that matter, where they say he came from. Um, Or that there was a red room in the basement that was used to slaughter the innocent. Mm -hmm. There wasn't. Or at least if there was, no one ever saw it. After the Lutzes took their, after like, this revelation, the Lusses took their show on the road, telling their story to as many television shows and conventions as would possibly listen. And what we don't know about that, as you have seen probably a lot of clips of George and Kathy Lutz talking to people, is that they left their children in orphanages. Yeah, Danny Lutz was left in a Catholic orphanage where priests performed numerous exorcisms on him. Yeah. Wow. I know. Nobody tells that part of the story. It wasn't great that they were out talking to, you know, Entertainment Tonight. Their kids were in trouble. So, uh, and they also collaborated with author Jay Anson on the book and movie, The Amityville Horror. George and Kathy, who have both since passed on, went to their graves swearing that the events they relayed were true and unedited. However, Ronald DeFeo Jr., that's Butch, his lawyer, William Weber, famously wrote to People magazine in 1979. He said that he had met with the Lutzes who were interested in, quote, developing the demonism aspect of the case and reported to the New York Times in 1992 that he and the Lusses, quote, created this horror story over many bottles of wine. He had also gone on a television show called A Current Affair, very 80s for anybody who once remembers then, in 1988, and claimed that he and the Lutzes, quote, took real-life incidents and transposed them to create a spooky, spooky tale sure to make a splash. For example turning a cat that lived in the neighborhood who had a habit of hanging out in the windows of the Lutz's house into the face of a pig demon. Hmm. Cat, pig demon, it's all the same thing, whatever, that menaced the family through the window. In other words, Mr. Weber said, it was a hoax. Now, there are lots of other myths about... Oh, I did this one, sorry. Now, this story may seem complete right now. I went through the whole thing with you. Some people think it's a hoax. Some people don't. But that's not all of it. Not yet, just a little bit left, hang in there. Because there are three other people that lived in that house at the time of the hauntings, and no one asked them what they saw. The Lutz children, Danny, Christopher, and Melissa, later, in their own ways, in their own statements, most notably Danny's 90-minute interview in the documentary My Amityville Horror, stated that the horrible things that happened in that house were true. It was frightening, It was sudden, and it was confusing, but a lot of it was George. George, who was abusive and domineering. George, whose love of the occult invited this presence into their home. And George, who, above all, took their story to the press, driving the children out of their home and across the country. Danny left home at 15 and lived homeless in the Arizona desert for years just to escape George. No one ever listened to the children. Well, no one except... Ed and Lorraine Warren. Ed and Lorraine had treated them kindly and took special care to listen to what they had to say. So does it come as any surprise that they or who the children would believe? 
Many psychologists think that Danny's experiences, claiming that he was possessed by demons himself, assaulted by ghosts, and injured by the home, were very real to him. In one of them, Danny talks about how he opened a window that slammed right back down on his hands and latched, crushing them with incredible force. It took three adults to free him. His hands swelled and bled. It was horrifying. But when his mother turned to get him ice, they returned to normal as if nothing happened. Nothing was injured except his pinky finger, which is still bent to this day. There is no doubt he was injured, but was it demons? Psychologists say no. They say these demons were money to George and an escape to Danny, a disassociation that explained the violence in his home in a way he could handle. In the end, I don't think we'll ever know. All the families who lived at 112 Ocean after the Luxes say they experienced absolutely nothing. The home was quiet and peaceful, full of good memories. So why them? Why the DeFeos? Why the Lutzes? Is this a strange coincidence? A momentary haunting that moved on once it was caught? Or is it something more? Does the house simply look for certain types of people? It certainly found them in Ronald DeFeo, and it certainly found them in, sorry, George Lutz and Butch DeFeo, and Danny Quaritino. Perhaps it is only a matter of time before the right person enters and the horrors of the house in Amityville are unlocked once again. The end. Yeah. Look at you. So that's the Amityville horror, you guys. Oh my god. You stuck it out. Way to go. Toast? Toast. Well, first of all, to all of you for coming out and listening to us tonight. Thank you. Cheers. Clink, clink, clink. Um, Anybody in this? I mean, I would Ed and Lorraine, but now I can't. They're terrible. <laughs> to Judy. Poor Judy. Both, Ju- both Judy. All the Judys. <laughs> I'm just sorry to Judy Kind. It's yeah. terrible. Um, to, I guess, the children. Yes. All of the children. All the children. All, to the children. <laughs> to, to the children. We just want to help the children, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> to the dogs that survived. And the dogs who did not die. Yep. <laughs> I wouldn't have done you dirty like that. And, um, and I would like to toast the, uh, what was it? The pig wolf girl. Pig wolf girl. Yeah. Or the, right. or the cat. Or like the local cat. A toast cat. to pig wolf girl. <laughs> and to Cape May Brewing Company. Yeah. Thank you guys so much Thank for you. having us tonight. We had a great time. And if we were stuck in a house of horrors, we, we would be dead. dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. Then why am I laughing? (laughs) 